0: Call me Ford Fairlane, rock and roll detective. The reason I never went back to New York, one good reason was I came to Hollywood to make a movie based on my original material, and I wasn't going to leave until it happened. I just pulled the name out of the hat Ford Fairlane. Sounded like rock and roll. For anybody who loves the movie, I think the book adds something to it without taking anything away from the very different thing that the movie is. But the movie is still rock and roll, and so are my stories.
1: One more thing about the book, the cover. That is a picture of you, is it not?
0: It is, it was taken by Deanne Stillman with my hair out to here, and my shades, and my leather jacket. That was me and continues to be me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Warning. This episode about rock and roll detective Ford Fairlane references punk rock, CD 70s and early 80s New York City and LA music clubs, and various illegal substances, including tanks of nitrous oxide. Side effects may include euphoria and uncontrollable fits of giggles. Do not listen while driving or lifting heavy machinery. I got no problem breaking the rules. This is a rock and roll show.
2: Rock is lit!
1: Hey, lit listeners. Welcome to another episode of Rock is Lit, the first and still only podcast devoted to rock novels, brought to you by the Pantheon Podcast Network.
0: Hey, this is Mick Jones of Foreigner, and you're listening to Pantheon Podcast.
1: I'm your host, Christy Alexander-Hallberg, author of my own rock novel, Searching for Jimmy Page. For more info on the podcast, me, or Searching for Jimmy Page, check out my website, christyalexanderhallberg.com. If you've got an idea for a future episode, Maybe a favorite rock novel you want to see featured on the show or you just want to connect. Find me on Facebook at Christy Alexander Hallberg and Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Christy Hallberg. If you enjoy the show, do me a solid and subscribe and leave a rating and comment on Good Pods and Apple Podcasts. Let's spread the word. As always, Wyatt, the Rock is Lit mascot, and I thank you for tuning in. In this episode, we're going back in time to talk about Ford Fairlane, a character created by Rex Weiner for a series of stories published in the late 70s in the now defunct New York Rocker, and a second series published in the early 80s in the LA Weekly. If you're around my age, you probably remember the 1990 movie The Adventures of Ford Fairlane starring Andrew Dice Clay that's loosely based on the character Rex created. It wasn't until 2018 that the New York and L.A. stories were finally published in their entirety in book form, entitled The Original Adventures of Ford Fairlane. And I am jazzed, and I get to chat with the author Rex Weiner about that book. Rex is an award-winning investigative journalist, author, and reporter on contemporary culture, writing for many publications in the U.S. and Europe. He is also an editor, stage, and screenwriter, publisher of fine art photography books through his Frontera Nueva imprint, and a co-founder and co-director of the Todos Santos Writers' Workshop. His 2019 feature, Inside the Battle for Britney for Los Angeles Magazine, broke the story on the world-famous pop star's legal predicament the shadowy industry that preys on conservatorships like hers nationwide, and the hashtag movement's successful campaign to expose it. He has served on the Board of Trustees of Beyond Baroque, the renowned L.A. Literary Center, where he created the author interview series, I Read Your Book And. Thanks for joining me, Rex.
0: Well, thank you for having me, Christy.
1: Well, I gather from reading your book that you're a fan of classic rock and punk bands, especially from the 1970s. I'm wondering what other kinds of music you're into. So let's play a set of five questions and find out. What music video made the biggest impression on you?
0: Well, in 1980, before there was even an MTV, a friend of mine took me aside in in his studio and showed me what he said was going to be the future, and it turned out to be a video of David Bowie's "Ashes to Ashes." Oh yeah, and I've never forgotten the poignant, very cinematic last scene where he's walking along the beach in a sort of Hayashi clown outfit, and and the older woman is speaking to him, and and they wander off into the distance, and um, indeed. That video, one of the first rock videos, was the future, at least for a while.
1: Yeah, and that's a fantastic video. At the time, I think it was the most expensive one ever made, and it's still one of the most expensive ones ever made.
0: Yeah. All
1: right. You're in a bar, and you see a rock star sitting in a corner nursing a drink and reading your book. Who is it, and what do you do?
0: Well, Miley Cyrus is sitting there at the end of the bar.
1: (laughs) Really? Okay, now I did not anticipate that.
0: And I go up to her and I said, because she's reading the original Adventures of Ford Fairlane, or she's reading, you know, my other book. Woodstock Census. The Woodstock Census. Yeah. If she's sitting there reading that, I go up to her and say, Miley? Miley? You read books?
1: Oh, my God.
0: (laughs) Ouch. Of course, I'm kidding. She's actually, I'm sure, a very intelligent and well-read young woman. But the next thing I tell her, Christy.
1: Yes? Miley, you're in my next novel. Oh. And
0: then we'll take it from there.
1: Now, is that actually true?
0: You'll have to ask Miley. Uh,
1: (laughs) Okay. All right. Number three, fill in the blanks. When I hear a blank song, I think of blank.
0: I recently um YouTube suggested I look at a uh, a live recording of Angel of the Morning. Are you familiar with that song?
1: Uh I'm familiar with the Juice Newton version. She actually didn't have the hit with that, but um uh, Marilee Rush had the uh the Billboard
0: top ten. Okay. And many have recorded it, but what I think of the most amazing thing, there are two amazing things about the song, Angel of the Morning. One is that it was written by a man, hmm. a songwriter named Chip Taylor, and he, for a moment, for the length of that song, inhabits the mind of a, a woman who is making a, a choice to have a one-night stand. Yeah. And it kind of ripped your heart out. Because you know, she knows, everyone knows this ain't going anywhere, but she's going to do it anyway. And it's in the live version that Chip Taylor sings, he gets very passionate. Obviously, the voice entered his head, much as any good writer gets a voice, a, a character's voice in their head, and they have to work that through. The other amazing thing is that if you listen to Angel of the morning, you'll notice that it shares the same chords as Wild Thing.
1: Oh my goodness. Now I never noticed that. I'll have to go back and play the two together.
0: Well, you'll have to do that, and then you'll notice that Chip Taylor, the songwriter, wrote both songs.
1: <laughs> really? Okay.
0: So if you think of them as an A side and a B side, it sort of tells the whole story.
1: Building strings to bind your hands, not if my love can't bind your heart. And there's no need to take a stand, for it was I who chose to start. I see no reason to take me home.
2: I'm old
0: enough
1: to face the dawn. Just call me
0: angel of Anyway, next question.
1: (laughs) What's on your playlist now? I'm in
0: Mexico as we speak. I'm in Los Cabos, and I live in Todos Santos on the other side of the peninsula, the Baja California Mm. Sur Peninsula. And I've lived in this region for almost 40 years off and on between Los Angeles and here. And I like the that Tex-Mex sound. I'm playing Texas Tornadoes with the late, great Doug Som singing uh, the very mysterious Joe Ely song that he wrote. Hmm, what's it called? She Never Spoke Spanish to Me. And what's well, very mysterious, and then that song on my playlist is followed by A Mexican Norteño singer.
1: Uh oh, Rex's Audio did one of these dealios. So, for the sake of clarity, he mentioned the Mexican singer Regulo Caro, who sings a song called Estos Dias These Days. Okay, back to the interview.
0: Now, you've heard Jackson Brown's fabulous song These Days. Sure. But uh, Regulo Caro's song is actually a voice from a Mexican prison, talking about what life is like in prison. And it it's another song that kind of tears your heart out. Mm. Now, on the Tex-Mex Rex playlist <laughs> is another song called Mighty 690, and that is written by Tex-Mex Rex, otherwise known as Rex Weiner.
1: Oh, really?
0: Yes, i am I'm on the American Standard Time label. That's a song that I recorded in Tucson about 30 years ago with some top musicians from the border. And it's uh, a corrido, which is a story song. And that's what I do. I tell stories as a musician, singer, songwriter. This is one of my favorite songs. And you'll find it on Spotify. And so the name of the song is Mighty 690, which was the call sign for Big Border Radio Station 690 on the dial. You could hear it a thousand miles away if the night was clear and you had a radio back in the day. Yeah. So that's it for the Tex-Mex Rex playlist.
1: Oh, I'll be looking for the whole Tex-Mex Rex playlist on Spotify when we get off of here, for sure. And I'll put links in the show notes. What's your favorite rock novel?
0: Well, Christy, I like Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas.
1: Yes, I love Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. It's, you know,
0: of course, by gonzo journalist Hunter Thompson, it's sort of where he invents the gonzo style. And I believe it captures the rhythm and pacing of rock and roll. And my philosophy as a writer, when it comes to music and writing is, you know, instead of writing about rock and roll, I always prefer writing that rocks. Mm -hmm. And that. Fear and Loathing, for me, fills the bill. And then, of course, my, my second favorite rock novel would be uh, Searching for Jimmy Page.
1: <laughs> yes, I'm sure it is. <laughs> Thanks for the shout out there.
0: That's, that's next on my uh, to-be-read list of books by my bedside.
1: Well, very nice. And and if my camera were working, I would show you my copy of the original Adventures of Ford Fairlane because it is heavily highlighted with all these notes in the margin. I thought it was fabulous. And of course, we're going to talk more about that after we take a short break. And let's take a short break and we'll be back with Rex Weiner.
0: Every night when the sun sets south of the border In the palapa, he sits drinking brandy and water. Turn up the radio, he calls out to his senora. And with tears in her eyes, she turns up the dial on the radio that he once bought her. Six years ago... Well, hey, this is Rex Weiner, and you're listening to
1: And we're back with Rex Weiner, author of The Original Adventures of Ford Fairlane. So I call this first line of questioning BFF, before Ford Fairlane. The first six installments of the Ford Fairlane stories are rooted in your experiences in New York City in the 70s. So let's go back to that time. You were living in a Manhattan loft in what is now called the Flatiron District. Here's a quote from the introduction in the book that reveals a lot about what kind of lifestyle you had at that time. Here's the quote. My girlfriend Deanne Stillman and I bought the place, fixed it up, and had a blast. We were writing for magazines, publishing books, running something called the Underground Press Syndicate, making a bit of money, and keeping a 50-pound tank of nitrous oxide in the corner just for laughs, so to speak. Our circle included the dopers at High Times, where I was a member of the founding editorial staff, And the first cast of Saturday Night Live due to the fact that Deanne was best buddies with SNL writer Anne Beats and Judy Jacqueline, consorts of Michael O'Donohue and John Belushi, respectively. And I think it's worth noting that Anne Beats created the nineteen eighty two CBS sitcom Square Pegs, and Deanne wound up working on that show, and hired her to write for that show. So you there's a lot of there's a lot going on in that one little paragraph that tells me a whole lot about life in the 70s for you in New York. So tell me more about that period.
0: Well, Christy, in New York in the 70s, you know, things were were pretty fragile, discombobulated. The city had been had declared near bankruptcy and the uh, Was told to drop dead by the President of the United States when they asked for a loan. You know, things were pretty much out of control. And um, I went from living on the Lower East Side and doing a lot of bad drugs and some good ones, (laughs) and working in the underground press, uh, so called. I had my own, well, I worked for something called the East Village Other. Mm -hmm. I'd take my $50 a week paycheck over to Max's Kansas City. The only place that would cash East Village other checks, and go upstairs and see you know, the Velvet Underground playing or, mm. or Big Star or something. You know, it was a wild time, and uh, I created my own publication called the New York Ace, and I wrote for every publication under the sun, and I met up with uh, Deanne, and we we had a big uh, you know journalism romance career. And uh, did the Woodstock census. I was friends with people whose names have probably been forgotten, mostly Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubin.
1: Oh, no, no, not forgotten.
0: People, you know, who called themselves yippies. Yes. And I was active in the anti war movement and took part in a lot of street battles and protest demonstrations, but also all the time I had. Uh, my hand in music, my friends, were people like Lester Bangs and Billy Altman and Nick Tashis. and We used to gather in journalistic pubs like the Lion's Head or the 55. And, and I even put together a little band of mainly journalists called, well, we called ourselves Blind Orange Julius first. Yep. And then we changed the name to King Rude. And we had a residency in the Journalists' bar called the Bells of Hell.
1: As I understand it, the the Bells of Hell had the best jukebox in New York at the time.
0: Oh, it was it was great, and you know, it was basically an Irish bar. Most of the Saturday Night Live folks would come in, and um, you know, there were <laughs> lines of cocaine along the bar. Of course, it'd stay open till you know four in the morning until dawn. Sometimes it would never close. We had a good time there but I always, you know, I think we played CBGB's once and got thrown out when I had a pie tossed in the face of one of the Ramones.
1: I was going to ask you about that. I was I was going to say that was your first gig and it was a double bill with the Ramones and it was a rather inauspicious meeting given that meringue pie that you're referencing. You want to tell me what happened?
0: Well, at the time I was running something called Agents of Pie Kill Unlimited. And the idea was you could hire any of our agents to throw a pie in somebody's face. You know, your boss, your teacher, your your loved one, and, uh, <laughs> or your, your hated one. Your hated one. Anyway, we went to, at the invitation of the owner of CBGB's, Hilly Crystal, before it became a big scene, he needed to get crowds in there. So he, he heard we had a a band and we were steady drinkers at his other bar so he invited us to play and we get over there we didn't have any equipment and there was already equipment set up so we plugged in and started playing and then these guys showed up with the stupidest name we'd ever heard of the Ramones <laughs> and I I slipped a few bucks to a friend of mine and he went around the corner came back with a pie and I hit one of them with the pie I don't know if it was Joey or whatever but uh,
1: It's Joey in the book, in the intro of the book.
0: Yes, it was Joey, I'll confess. And anyway, uh, that was the end of our invitation to play CBGBs. uh, Oh,
1: my. Well, you know, I have an inside scoop on that tank of nitrous oxide that was in your loft apartment. Do you remember the writer Robert Duncan, who was an editor at Cream, and he was a good friend of Lester Bangs? Robert just told me that um, he went to a party at the loft. and. He had his first hit of nitrous oxide there, so he remembers you in that tank fondly.
0: Oh, well, I remember Robert fondly and his wife, Ronnie. Mm hmm. Great photographer and uh, always on the scene. So he was part of the whole gang, too. So
1: he said that he has a copy of the original Ford Fairlane script signed by you in his archive. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> well, that's fantastic. Well, A big shout out to Robert and I hope he and Ronnie are doing well.
1: All right, so at one point, you moved out of the loft to the basement of the Chelsea Hotel, and then on to what you describe as a cold-water dump on First and First, just off Houston Street. Do you recall what year you were at the Chelsea? I mean, mean, were you there when Sid Vicious killed Nancy Spungen? No, I
0: wasn't wasn't there yet. I think I was there in 70—or no, I was there later in 79— you know, it's all kind of hazy, <laughs> and uh, in a court of law, I'd be a terrible witness for either the victim or the, the alleged <laughs> slayer, but uh, it, was, it was a miserable time. I was sort of at the end of my rope, which is a good place for a writer to be when you're desperate, and, and you've got to, got to write yourself out of, the, out of the basement.
1: Oh, yes. I am familiar. Speaking of writing, you were writing for magazines in the '70s, and, and really newspaper and magazine writings in your DNA. Your dad was a newspaper man. So talking about writing yourself out of the hole, what made you decide to shift gears and start writing fiction? So enter Fort Fairlane.
0: Well, in, in the late '70s, you know, there I was out on my own, and I didn't have an actual job or anything so. I was going to the late night clubs, just kind of for want of anything better to do. So you know, CBGB's, the Mud Club, Tier Three, all of these kind of crazy places where new wave and punk was was thriving. And I wanted to write about it, but I I didn't know where to write about it. I I really didn't want to be a journalist talking about which bands were good or which bands were bad or what I liked or didn't like. I wanted a different way of writing about the scene and the music. And so I came up with a formula that would be a character who, like me at the time, was living a late night lifestyle, but was compelled to be there and to go from one place to the next. And so the best kind of character for that would be a private eye, a detective, following a mystery and compelled to follow it from here to there. Right. Right. So that's, that was my formula for, I just pulled the name out of the hat, Ford Fairlane. Sounded like rock and roll.
1: Tell me more about him. What, how would you describe him? Because I know that your influences were Mickey Spillane and Lester Bangs and Chuck Berry and your own adventures in downtown New York City and LA later on in the 70s and early 80s. And it all added up to the character of a rock and roll detective searching for clues to the mystery of America. So that's quite a combination. It's pretty open what his age is. It's pretty open. I mean, I know Andrew Dice Clay was actually 32, I think, when he played him in the film. But it's, it's open in the stories, what he might look like, how old he might be. So how would you describe him?
0: You know, Mickey Spillane, but also Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett. You know, they're, Hammett wrote about a character called the Continental Op, an operative for the Continental Detective Agency. And I'm not sure he describes him either. All of these people, do they look like Humphrey Bogart in The Maltese Falcon? Do they look like uh, Alan Ladd in one of the Chandler's pictures? So, you know, I think I didn't want to limit the reader's imagination. I wanted them to color in the color, put in the colors rather than me. It's first person, so it's in his words. And so
1: we're sort of in his head. You actually do describe him, but not in physical terms. You write, and this is from the intro to the book, I invented a character loosely modeled on myself, a streetwise young dude, armed with a knowledge of music history that helped him do the job he had to do, chasing down secrets, the mysteries of the music. He was a private eye, a detective in the classic film noir mode, a new wave detective. As the first stories were originally subtitled, who worked in the music business, a man who knew everybody and everybody knew him. He was professional, dedicated, and he had style, but he was ready to tangle with anybody who tried to cross him, and you wouldn't want to cross Ford Fairlane. That's a terrific characterization of this guy, and I love that he used to be a bouncer before getting his PI license. <laughs> <laughs>
0: It just sort of made sense, Christy. I mean, uh, you know, you want him to be physically confident, so being a bouncer makes sense. You want him to know the music scene, so working at nightclubs, you know, helps that. He's he's a fan of the music to some extent. You know, he's not like a fanboy, but he knows the musicians, knows the music knows who, you know, the backup singers were on the B side of, you know, somebody's hit. And he knows these things because it's his business to know this as much as it is his enthusiasm for music. He may despise the music business, but he loves the music. Yes. It all sort of made sense and and these are sort of my attitudes too. And uh, you know, I had my scuffles on the streets of New York and I carried a knife in my back pocket up until the time I moved to L.A. in 81. Mm-hmm. And then I, somebody said to me, what are you carrying a knife for? And I said, I don't know. I guess, you know, I guess this isn't New York anymore. They said, yeah. So uh, that was the end of the knife.
1: Yoo-hoo. Hey, Lit listeners, if you're enjoying the episode so far, stop what you're doing and leave a rating and comment on Good Pods or Apple Podcasts. I'll leave links in the show notes. Seriously, Rock is Lit is a new show in a sea of podcasts. Help me build momentum about this first and only podcast devoted to rock novels. The way to build that momentum and grow an audience, besides listening to the episodes and telling your friends to check us out, is to get Rock is Lit on some podcast lists with your ratings and comments. It'll only take a minute, it won't cost you a cent, and you get some good karma. Links in the show notes. Thanks so much for your support. And now back to your regularly scheduled program. Let's move into the first publication of the, the stories. The first adventure was published in the now defunct New York Rocker in nineteen seventy nine. Andy Schwartz was publisher and editor, and he agreed to serialize the story in six biweekly installments. Why six?
0: Well, Christy, I I chose enough to uh to get a, a publisher to publish, an editor to publish, and each episode was short enough to not take up too much valuable advertising space. And um, six seemed like a good number.
1: You didn't have the whole thing plotted out when you started. I mean, you did have a vague idea of the kind of case he'd be working on in each series, but that was it. You would turn them in episode by episode, not knowing when you finished one what was going to happen next. Now, that must have been both exciting and not a little scary, because you don't know if the muse is going to return. So what what was your overall concept of the first case?
0: In New York, it's uh, the theft of a rare guitar that a rock star, unnamed, wants returned, wants tracked down and returned. And that opens up into a larger plot. And as I wrote this, I, I discovered what I was writing about. And, and that's a that is exciting, wonderful, and a little scary. Night, I need a wensity man. We were talking about you, babe. And they said you was involved in the robbery that was due to happen at a quarter the three in the main street.
1: Speaking of that stolen guitar that a rock star hires Ford to find for him. And that story, as you were saying, it unfolds into this kind of neo-Nazi plot to replace guitar music with electronic music, which was kind of like what was going on with music in the late 70s and 80s. But the owner of the the stolen guitar, (laughs) there are little clues in there about who that might be. I don't want to give too much away, but I do want to highlight some of my favorite bits of the New York story. So speaking of the little hints of who the rock star might be, He has a Liverpudlian accent, everybody knows, and he got arrested for pop possession in Tokyo. Now, I wonder who that could be. Wink, wink. I'll let listeners figure that one out. Uh, Rex, I love the 40s detective noir lingo. It just gives the story this kind of nice old school Raymond Chandler flavor, like played me for a sap, play canary, dirty rat, bump me off. All of that kind of thing, and and then the the chapters all end with cliffhangers, and then there's there's an ample supply of car chases and fights and fires to keep you entertained. And I do have to say, the ending to the New York story is hilarious. And again, I'm not going to give away (laughs) any details, but it does involve Lester Bangs and John Morthland. So I got a a big chuckle out of that.
0: Well, I miss I miss John and I miss Lester and and my friends at that time but you know it sometimes seems these days like you know so many people who are dead but that's only because you know so many people
2: there are places i remember
1: Okay, we are now at the part of The Adventures of Rex Weiner. When you moved to California, which was 1980, your friend Paul Krasner hired you to join the writing staff of the Steve Allen Election Eve comedy special for HBO. And HBO would have been really new at that time. And you had never written for TV before. They
0: had offices on top of the uh, the two the Century City towers, and the desks were still in plastic. We had to take the desks out of the plastic. And oh, wow. It was it was that new.
1: Tell me about that transition from New York to California. That must have been like culture shock. You said you had to retire your knife.
0: <laughs> well, yes. And I, I rented a, uh, uh, well, you know, the HBO comedy special was a, a gig. While I was doing that, I, I checked out the music scene in LA and you know, like New York, it had its own kind of flavor and sound and, you know, you know red hot chili peppers, the plugs, the uh, fear, so many great bands out of the South Bay. And, you know, there was hmm. a very hard hitting, you know, the meat puppets. It was a crazy time. So while I was writing this comedy special, not a word, not a single joke got into it, by the way.
1: Oh, no. <laughs> but
0: I was well-paid, and uh, I stayed at the Magic Motel, which was next door to where Janis Joplin had stayed in, in her last days.
1: hope uh, it's next door to the Landmark? Really?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And it was sort of associated with the Magic Castle, but not quite. In any case, um, I cruised around Hollywood in a rent-a-wreck, and I uh, convinced my old friend... Jay Levin, the publisher of the fairly new Los Angeles LA Weekly newspaper, to do what The Rocker had done, which is publish six installments with cliffhangers about Ford Fairlane, this detective who just happened to be in LA on a short vacation and gets convinced to take a case of a a missing punk rock star and uh, falls into a hole. Uh, situ- a new adventure in LA. So I finished the HBO gig, finished the six chapters of the LA adventure of Ford Fairlane, and went back to New York City. Worked for a girly mag. I, was, I had the dream job. <laughs> I was the editor-in-chief of a magazine called Swank. And I was, you know, in charge of the centerfolds and picking the, the pictorials and
1: you poor dear.
0: And I <laughs> I had a great time. You know, I had an office opposite Carnegie Hall. I could hear Frank Sinatra rehearsing for his comeback and mm. and I every day I'd walk from my sublet in Hell's Kitchen to across Times Square. And in the evening I would walk back and sometimes never make it home. And, <laughs> you know and, and there was a whole world of Times Square before it became Disney. And uh, yeah. and having a, a girly mag where I could get all my friends to give them all jobs, writing jobs and stuff was great. And then one day I get a call.
1: Yes, you get a call and uh, you sort of hang up on the caller.
0: Because I thought it was, you know, one of my drinking buddies pulling my yo-yo saying, hey, I'm a Hollywood <laughs> producer and we want to make a, a movie about this Ford Fairlane. And I hung up on him. And then Christy, it's no joke. Six months later, I was in Hollywood, under contract to Columbia Pictures, and with an office and my own parking spot with my name on it.
1: My goodness. And staying at the Chateau Marmont. They put me at the Chateau Marmont at first, and I had a pretty good time writing for
0: the first time a screenplay. How difficult can a, writing a movie be? And,
1: well, you, you soon discovered... Well, I laid around in my swaddling clothes Until the doctor came and turned out the lights Then I packed my bag And my name tag Stole away into the night Hoping things would work out right And that's why God made learned a lot about it, though, from Floyd Mutrix, who was going to produce that first version.
0: Yeah, Floyd was a real rock and roll uh, writer, producer, director. He did a movie that's now forgotten called Freebie and the Beam, but it was a big hit. And that gave him license to do the Alan Freed story, the, Matt, the DJ who yeah. invented the ben term and rock and roll. And yeah, And Floyd was a big enthusiast he did a movie that's been forgotten as well called dusty and sweets mcgee which was about uh it was about two heroin addicts in venice california during the solid gold weekend which is a radio format that's that nobody remembers anymore either but where they would just play the hits from yesteryear all weekend long and count down to you know the number one hit and meanwhile. It's sort of Romeo and Juliet on junk. Anyway, (laughs) Floyd was a great teacher. He taught me everything about screenwriting. And, uh, you know, we, uh, in the back of, you know, in his Ferrari and his Mercedes, we went all over town, strip joints, dive bars, you know, some of the best restaurants. He was known everywhere. And we wrote this screenplay and handed it in. And the studio, which was owned by Coca-Cola at the time, Sold it to the Japanese to become Sony, and Ford Fairlane went out the window.
1: Which is a pretty typical thing, as I understand it. That happens a lot. You've said those who know how to write a screenplay are few and far in between. Can you, can you think of some great screenplays besides Chinatown? Because I, I know you think that's brilliant, as do I. What makes a great screenplay, and what are some really great ones?
0: What you, f- what you feel at the end is set up in the beginning. And that sort of feeling of, uh uh-huh, I was expecting that, but there's a satisfaction that comes from being suspended between those two points. So that when you arrive at the end of the Maltese Falcon, when Bogart holds the statue and the cop says, what is it? He says, the stuff that dreams are made of. You want to have a satisfying ending that you sort of you can see coming from a long way off, and, and that's kind of what I tried to do in the written versions of Ford Fairlane. Is to is to give a, a feeling of satisfaction when you start here and you don't know where it's going, and then you you end up at a place that it couldn't have ended any other way. And so that takes great skill, and you have to understand how screenplays work and what doesn't work. It's tough. It's the toughest form of writing that there
1: is mm. well the movie is vastly different from the stories hello LA
2: a rock star is dead Bobby. a groupie has disappeared and millions are missing those were his kind of odds his name Ford Fairlane When your beat is the music business, you keep notes on everyone. Andrew Dice Clay is Ford Fairlane. LA drivers man in a movie so hot, you would better bring protection. Ford Fairlane.
1: So, when you wrote that initial screenplay, were you sticking to the original material, or were you going in a different direction as well?
0: Well, over over the years, Christy, I. I wrote screenplays for TV for Miami Vice.
1: I know. Wasn't it the Glades episode?
0: Yes, the, the ninth episode. It's a great episode, if I may say so. I wrote several movies. TNT's first made-for-TV movie called Forgotten Prisoners, The Amnesty Files, all about a case from Amnesty International. Okay. I wrote several other things. Sorry, I was... Less successful as a screenwriter than some, but more than most, and um, I had a good a good ten year career as a screenwriter. But finally, the reason I never went back to New York, one good reason was I came to Hollywood to make a movie based on my original material, and I wasn't going to leave until it happened. And finally, I was approached by the uh, the legendary producer,
1: yeah, Joe Silver,
0: and the. Uh, he had a deal at 20th Century Fox. and He says, I'm going to make this movie. And he had a star in mind. So he um, he got the, the movie made. And it was, you know, there wasn't I wrote the first draft of the screenplay and there were several other uh, writers who came in on this. And finally, Dan Waters, who did Heather's, got the uh, screenplay credit. Which is fine by me because there's not a single word of mine in the movie that eventually was produced. Yeah. But, you know, that movie wouldn't exist. Those people who worked on it wouldn't have had jobs. There's a whole cult following of The Adventures of Ford Fairlane out there still calling for a sweet sequel. Uh, A lot of people really enjoyed that movie, and I would not have a whole life that followed in Los Angeles, in California, and in Mexico as a result of the adventures of Ford Fairlane. So, I And I made a, a nice bit of money from it, continued to. And so it's very rare, Christy, that you write something that actually changes anybody's life, especially your own. But I have had that experience with Ford Fairlane And so I I regret nothing.
1: That movie had so many famous people in it. Vince Neil is actually the guy who gets killed in it. He's the murder victim at the beginning. Let's see, who else?
2: Priscilla Presley. Who? Ed O'Neill.
1: Booty tie. booty tie.
2: Robert England. <laughs> Tone Loke. Gilbert Gottfried. Sheila E. Hey. And Wayne Newton. What? yes. Wayne new. And I gotta defeat a baby.
1: Priscilla Presley, that was her only non-naked gun movie that she did, was the Ford Fairlane movie. There's a lot of, of interesting folks in that. You ever thought about doing a new adaptation?
0: Well, yes. As a matter of fact, I do have something in the works, and I can just say that, you know, Ford Fairlane has aged well. <laughs> and... You know, but the music business comes calling, even though he's retired. And uh, as always, the past haunts the present. And it's only because he knows the past of the music business that he's able to solve the mystery of the present time. That's in the works.
1: That's fabulous to know. All right. You have to keep me updated on that. Jumping back to when you first went to L.A. to begin working on the script, I'm really fascinated by the two weeks you spent riding around L.A. with these two homicide detectives. I, I'm not sure if I'm going to pronounce his name correctly, Gil Parra Para, and his partner, Stanley White, who was the basis of the Mel Gibson character in Lethal Weapon and your own Skull Snyder stories. You've said at the end of those two weeks, you not only knew L.A., you knew it from the point of view of a corpse. What sticks out in your memory about that experience?
0: Well, one day, Stanley and Gil, they were always trying to jerk by a chain, so to speak. They decided to take me to the county morgue. Yikes. And so we're walking around, and, you know, it was like the ninth circle of hell. It was really quite something, and the things I saw there will never be unseen but there was one moment when we went to a part of the more they call the canoe factory and the canoe factory is where the slabs are where the bodies are being dissected and investigated oh and goodness. they're on their backs so their rib cage is up like like the ribs of a canoe that's why they call it the canoe factory
1: oh i was gonna guess drowning victims but that makes more sense
0: But there was one body waiting to get carved up, and it was a a hooker who had been shot by her pimp. And she was just completely nude with a bullet hole in the center of her chest. And Stanley is standing there with me, staring at her, and he grabs my hand and puts it on her breast. Ugh. He says, nice ones, huh?
1: Oh, my gosh. Well, now I know why he was the basis of the Mel Gibson character in Lethal Weapon. That fits.
0: Right. Well, then he stared at his partner again and says, you're next.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> this is, It's terrible humor, but, you know, afterwards we went to the strip and got stinking drunk, and Stanley stood in the middle of the Sunset Strip, fired his pistol into the air out of just sheer exuberance because we were all still alive and we'd seen so much death, and I'll never forget that day.
1: Yeah. Something else struck me in that time that you were in L.A., because you, you're you the rock and roll guy, so the studio's going to throw all of the rock and roll jobs your way, and one was a project based on the life of Eddie Cochran, and you were working with Rob Lowe on this. Now, this play actually was produced, was it not?
0: Well, yes. Rob Lowe wanted to be Eddie Cochran, and uh, Eddie is is also one of those overlooked figures in rock and roll. But without him, we wouldn't have the rock and roll we have today. In fact, Bob Dylan called Eddie Cochran the first protest singer because in summertime blues, Eddie said, I went to my congressman and he said, Quote, I'd like to help you, son. You're but you're too, too young, young to
1: vote. Yes.
0: <laughs> he died at the age of 21 in England with in a car crash with Gene Vincent and the first woman songwriter, Sharon Sheeley, his girlfriend. It was a tragic story. And Rob Lowe wanted to be Eddie Cochran in this movie. And so I was the rock and roll guy on the on the Columbia Pictures lot. And they came to me and, and I did the research like the good journalist that I was. I met Eddie's parents and I met all of the people who played with him and remembered him. I even took Rob Lowe to Nashville to meet Hank Conkren, not no relation, but he used to tour with Eddie. Mm. And uh, I had I taught Rob Lowe how to play Eddie's signature songs and
1: on guitar, yeah.
0: And then that that um, screenplay didn't get made either, but uh, I turned it into a play that has been performed many times. In fact, uh, it was produced. In Hollywood, by John Densmore of the Doors and Adam Ant. Really? Yes, together they were both Eddie Cochran, Gene Vincent fans. And so uh, Donald Logue played Eddie, Donald, who was a terrific actor, and Paul Hip, who had originated the role of Buddy Holly in the West End a version of Buddy and on Broadway, played Gene Vincent.
1: Hmm.
0: It's been performed many times, and I took it to the Edinburgh Fringe, and we ran it uh, for two hit weeks there. And uh, that, I, I love doing theater. It's the best fun you can have with your clothes on. <laughs> Says, no die, son you gotta work late.
1: Sometimes I wonder, what I'm a gonna do, but there ain't no cure for the summertime, Is that how you met John Densmore? Because I know he gave a blurb for your book.
0: Well, John is is an old friend. We actually got a blurb from him, uh Deanna and I for the Woodstock Census, and uh, Okay. The only way we were able to get that blurb was to. Find a way to him, and he helped us do that. Later, when I moved to LA, we we fell in together.
1: Why do you think it took until 2018 for those two Ford Fairlane stories to be collected and published in book format for the very first time, nearly 40 years after their initial run?
0: Well, it was a combination, Christie, of two things. First of all, there was a, an editor with his own imprint, Tyson Cornell, who is a rock and roller himself, who really loved those stories and, um, and was capable of, of printing them. Rare Bird Books is his publishing house, and uh, they've published uh, a number of rock and roll themed books. So there was that. But also because um, over the years, so many people asked me how I felt about that movie, and it was hard to talk about it without saying, well, you really should read the stories. But the stories, I didn't have any way for people to read them. And so it finally came to a head, and Tyson Cornell agreed to publish the two original stories with a prologue and uh, also some follow-up interviews with Andy Schwartz and Floyd Mutrix. Yep. I'm very happy with that book. And for anybody who loves the movie, I think the book adds something to it without taking anything away from the very different thing that the movie is. But the movie is still rock and roll, and so are my stories.
1: You know, I had not seen the movie when I read the book, so I didn't have that imprinted on my brain when I came to the stories. I agree with you, though. I think if you've seen the movie, you can certainly read the book. They're just very different animals. The two could be great companion pieces.
0: Well, I agree, and I thank you for that. That uh, viewpoint, for
1: speaking. and I think also 2018 was a great year for the book to come out. It was Mickey Spillane's 100th birthday, so there's that. And then there's this resurgence of interest in the music and art and culture of the 70s. You know that the stories just ring true as authentic artifacts of that time, and those two places. And we talked more about the New York stories. I'd like to go back and just say a couple of things about the L.A. stories, because one of my favorite parts of that aspect of Ford Fairlane has to do with all the real people who populate that story. I mean, we get a mention of Rodney Bingenheimer, and of course he had that radio show. And then you mention uh, Vin Vomsky. Who was a radio personality and lead singer for Puke? In fact, he takes Ford Fairlane to see Darby Crash at the Starwood. You had a friend who took you to see Darby Crash. I think it was at the Starwood. So that was an interesting little bit of, of trivia there. You know, Darby Crash has been on the brain for a while for me because I actually had never heard of the Germs or Darby Crash until I read uh, Janet Fitch's novel, Painted Black. And she was on episode four of Rock is Lit. And I had uh, Nicole Panter, who used to manage the germs on that show as well, that episode as well. And she talked a lot about that scene, and she talked a lot about the germs and Darby and all of that. So that was a lot of fun, reading that. And then I loved that Wanda's manager's name is Mitch Mitchell of Mitch Mitchell Talent, Inc. So, of course, you flash on Jimi Hendrix's drummer, And then there are all these places that pop up, like the Chateau Marmont, Schwab's Drugstore, Madame Wong's West Side, the Whiskey, Laurel Canyon, and then all these bands like Kickboy Face, and the Screamers, the Weirdos, the Germs, the Bags, Circle Jerks, and on and on. And then there's Belinda Carlisle of the Go-Go's. She's a character in the story. I was wondering, did any of these real people you included in the stories give you any guff about the way you portrayed them? Although, I mean, you were very respectful about the way you portrayed them, but did they have anything to say?
0: I even disguised Pleasant Gaiman in the... In the uh, I
1: things. love Pleasant Gaiman.
0: And so uh, I met her then. In fact, I, I arranged to, to sort of spend like a, a day and a night with her and her friends as, as my research for that whole West Coast episode. I'm not sure if she remembers that, but, you know, we're in touch.
1: Let's hear a snippet from one of Pleasant's L.A. punk bands, Screaming Sirens. This is called Don't You Fade Away. Pleasant has been on Rock is Lit, too, and, and talking about that whole scene. And I know you hosted a talk with Pleasant and Pamela day who's also been on the show, about writing rock and roll memoirs. So you, you're firmly and comfortably ensconced in that world and with those people.
0: Well, they're both terrific. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm very fond of Pamela and Pleasant. And, yeah. um, you know, they, they are authentic people of, of their time. And their experience is like no one else's. And they really uh, speak with authority about, um, as writers, about that time. As for Janet Fitch, you know, she recently joined us leading the fiction workshop in our Todos Santos Writers Workshop here in Baja.
1: I did not know that. Okay.
0: So she and her husband, Andrew Nichols, the comedy writer, spent a week with us in our Toto Santos Writers Workshop, and she's terrific.
1: She is, indeed. All right, we have one one more section before you split. It's a very important one. It's called Only Pick One. I got this idea from Peter McDade's rock novel, The Weight of Sound. You can only pick one in each category I'm going to throw out. You ready? I'm ready. Drinks mentioned in your book. Old Overholt whiskey, which I had never heard of, red wine, of course paired with ludes. although everybody knows ludes only go with white wine, and Budweiser, Night Train, or shots of bourbon. Pick one.
0: <laughs> well, I like the Old Overholt, which we used to call Old Overcoat, <laughs> and it comes in little tiny pints, and you can tuck them away, but it's rye whiskey, which is kind of my favorite. Uh, next to bourbon.
1: Okay. Now here's another category: worst kind of torture mentioned in your book. Removing a fingernail, cutting off part of an ear, or playing Lou Reed's Metal Machine Music at full blast.
0: <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, here is Metal Machine Music Link is Ray. you know Lester, Lester Bangs would put that on when he wanted to chase everybody out of his apartment and just be alone with his. Cough syrup and his lute.
1: <laughs> Robert Duncan told me that uh, he would play that when he was writing in the cream offices, too. And he's like, it's just awful. He would play that at full blast and write and write and write. Okay, we're going to go with Lou Reed's metal music, metal machine music. Guitars mentioned in your book, in which all are missing, a Link Ray lyre body, Dan Electro. It's one of only five made. A fifty-nine Gibson Sunburst Les Paul. And I think this is what Jimmy Page played. An ES335 Gibson dot marker nineteen sixty. And then Jimi Hendrix's powder blue fender strat with the maple neck. Which one you picking, Rex?
0: Well, I'm going with the Link Ray Dan Electro because Link Ray was a very special figure in, in rock and roll, one of the few Native American mm-hmm. stars. That he had a guitar named after him at all was amazing, but the Dan Electro with that unusual body, it was just a startling and good sounding piece of equipment.
1: Well, I am required by law to go with the Jimmy Page guitar. I will say about Link Ray, there's a special place in my heart for him. He's from my native North Carolina. He's from Dunn, North Carolina, so you know, nod to him.
0: Okay, here he is. Let's welcome Link. Rave. <laughs>
1: Okay, here's another one. New York City, New York City Music Clubs mentioned in your book. CBGB, Tier 3, Mud Club, Club 57. Which one you going to tonight?
0: Well, I love Club 57. You know, they would publish a month-long calendar of events. I wish I still had those calendars. There would be everything from, you know, drag polo night to... Uh, I mean, you name it, and I used to drop in there, and it, every night there was something different. And I'm sure tonight, wherever Club 57 exists in the universe, there's <laughs> something, something really special going on there tonight. So Very uh, nice. I'll see you there, Christy.
1: All right, I will go. LA Music Club's mentioned in your book, Zero Zero, The Starwood, The Mask, Club 88 on West Pico. And that's not all of them mentioned. I just picked some.
0: Well, I like the zero zero a lot. A lot of careers were made there, and a lot of great music was played there. But it was managed for a long time by a, a great friend of mine, who I continue to be in touch with. Who called himself Wezata de Camarón. And, I see. Uh, he teaches art now somewhere on the East Coast. But <laughs> he ran the craziest club, and uh, we had some wonderful times there.
1: Okay, zero zero. Here's the last one. And it's the most important, so really think hard about this. Best rock guitarist, Jimmy Page, Jimmy Page, or Jimmy Page?
0: Well, I think I'll take Mr. Jimmy Page, Christine.
1: That's the correct answer. Well done. You pass. Well, this was great, Rex. What have you got going on now that you want to tell listeners about?
0: I think I've already mentioned Tex-Mex Rex. Yes, you Um, have. And the upcoming album from American Standard Time Records, which has a lot of great artists on the label, and I, I highly recommend that. But, you know, I enjoy talking about Ford Fairlane with you, Christy, and, and you, you're so well-versed in, in what I wrote. And, of course, your own rock and roll history is, is pretty terrific, your writing. So uh, hats off to you.
1: Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to read the book. Thank you for sending it. And it has been an absolute pleasure talking with you. Find Rex Weiner on Twitter at Ford Fairlane PI and on Facebook at The Original Adventures of Ford Fairlane. And for God's sake, pick up a copy of The Original Adventures of Ford Fairlane at your local indie bookstore or wherever you buy books.
0: Thanks again.
1: Thank you
2: all the time
1: Stay tuned for upcoming episodes of Rock is Lit to hear from more great rock novelists and special guests who will offer commentary on the music or musical events featured in these novels. If you like what you hear, subscribe, follow, and spread the word. And check out the Rock is Lit vault on my website for news, bonus material, and outtakes from episodes. Until next time, keep rocking and reading and getting lit.
0: Rock is lit!